Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. And in this podcast, we want to share mentorship to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather wild food. Our goal is to reduce barriers and create an inclusive and welcoming community for all folks who want to learn how to eat wild. So join us as we share stories, ethics, adventures, and knowledge about a way of life that's rooted in eating wild. Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Iris. In this episode, we're joined by Jeff Singer. Now, Jeff is a super interesting guy, and I've been following him for a number of years. He's he's the co-host of the uh, From the Wild uh, web series. It's a it's a it's a it's the uh, series is all about um, harvesting wild food and and creating amazing meals from wild food. And, and it's uh, it's Kevin Kosowan's project based out of uh, out of Alberta and the two of them started out just going out in the field and uh harvesting critters and plants and then and that's evolved into now eight seasons of of a web series it's grown in popularity um it's become progressively more engaging and beautiful uh that the the way that they're able to uh showcase their experiences in the boreal forests and and as well as on their adventures beyond um, but super cool project. So, anyways, that that's uh, that's from the wild and the television show. Now, Jeff's also a super super neat guy. He he actually retired at at twenty six. Uh, he was an accountant uh, on the fast track to becoming a, uh, a, a, a you know a corporate uh, partner in an accounting firm firm, and eventually and and found his way to becoming to retiring at twenty six and and buying a farm in northern Alberta. And and that took him on this journey to becoming a foodie and uh, and someone who tells stories around food and where it comes from and and he actually ended up buying a uh, buying into a, a, an abattoir or a slaughterhouse uh, in northern Alberta and and has sort of become a prof- proficient in in you know, slaughtering animals and and uh, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have him on the podcast is in addition to you know all his adventures in food i, I kind of wanted to talk to him a little bit about and, and discuss the uh the the process of, of 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 killing animals from a hunter's perspective and then from someone whose job it is to to kill domestic animals and and just try to get some insight there so we, we try and get to there throughout this podcast but obviously we have a little bit of fun along the way and end up talking about wild cocktails and, and adventures so um, this this was a this is a fun hang with a with a really engaging individual that's done a lot of cool stuff and hopefully uh, hopefully you'll have a little fun listening along. Now this podcast is is brought to you by our friends at West Coast Kitchen. Uh, they do amazing um, uh, freeze dried food for your adventures and they'll nourish you on your next adventure. Um, and also I should give a shout out to my good friends at Seek Outside who continue to. Um, provide awesome gear for me to go on my adventures and uh let's get into this one welcome jeff to the eat well podcast uh i'm I'm really excited to have you here because uh like i said in the intro there i've been following you guys for a while and and what you and kevin have been doing and uh yeah great it's great to have have you on so welcome to the well podcast thank you i'm pleased to be here this is a really upscale podcast dylan you know, oh, it, um, it's, it's the big time, man. You, you've achieved the big time. I know that you were, you know, you were, you were saying that you, you, you were trying to reach out to more fans. Well, this is the way to do it. You're gonna, 
hit thousands of people here in this conversation. So that's um, terrific. I think that's true. And I could use some fans, you know, Dylan, sometimes I feel a little lonely out of my house on the hill. Winter comes, the sun sets at three 30 and I'm waiting for the fans to call. And then yeah, that's well, when you con you contacted me. I've been by chasing mistake. you down. No, I've been chasing you for you're my big get on the on the well, oh, okay. on yeah. podcast. Seriously. Yeah. In a I small handful in a small handful of very very specific people, I am a big name. Well, this is it. There's a, so there's very there's a very small slice of the world. You That's right. Like, you get yeah. kind of excited about talking to somebody who you know who does who kills things for a living, and you're like, oh, I'll take it. I find interest in that. Okay. So, I'll so yeah, it, so yeah. we're we're, we're going to get around talking about killing things in a bit, and I think that's sure. the, like, and 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 I think you know telling the whole story around killing things, and and uh, I'll but let's let's take a step back because you've done some cool things, and you you you, you I'd like to get let the listeners know a little bit more about uh, how you got here. So um, maybe just give me an introduction on on what your what your business is now, and and your involvement in the From the Wild project. Sure. Uh- well, it kind of goes back in history to a time where Kevin Koswan, local videographer and filmographer, uh, local food storyteller, uh, and a small C celebrity in Edmonton at the time, uh, and I, he and I met at a Slow Food Edmonton event called Indulgence, where local craft producers and artisan food people uh, were producers, were, were paired with uh, chefs in the local food scene in Edmonton. And he was there, uh, I'm pretty sure he had his camera with him, and he was just shooting some film for Slow Food Edmonton. And um, he, we were just mixing and mingling at like a fairly decent hotel in Edmonton. Uh, the, the producers, uh, I think I, was, I produced some beef on our, on our farm here that we had killed at the slaughterhouse that I own and operate. And uh, we had partnered with a restaurant chef that I was delivering to. So we were just making little, little snick snacks um, at each table for a Slow Food kind of fundraiser. And Kevin approached me and he said, I heard that you're like, you're a slaughterhouse owner. Is that, is that the case? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, mostly that's not people under 60 or 70 in our province for small uh, abattoir operators. And I'm like, strangely enough, I have a background in accounting and, uh, and recently made a career change to being an abattoir oper- owner operator. And he's like, that's funny. I want to come out and shoot if, if uh, like shoot some film there, if that's okay with you. Um, so I had a, a 50% partner at the time and we uh i kind of took that that meeting with kevin and and took his card or his his number or something like that and went back and discussed it with my slaughterhouse uh co-partner uh, whose name was also kevin kevin meyer and and we kind of said man this could really blow up in our faces because it's around a sensitive issue or or it could go quite well so we decided to bring kevin uh Koswan, uh into the plant and just give him all access and just uh, i remember the the philosophy for, philosophy for me was um that whatever the big companies in, in meat and food production are doing, we should do the opposite because we can. And they were building walls and uh, monitoring with drones and secret police for or like special police forces to keep people away from the process of animals being turned into meat. Uh, and they had a lot to fear and a lot to lose uh, due to, uh, you know, inv- I mean, animal rights folks and, uh, environmentalists have serious concerns about the the big food the, the you know the the industrial food chain. Uh, we had a lot less to worry about because we had a smaller plant and and we had made adjustments to handle it handle things in a really humane small way. So Kevin came and did some films for us at at Sanguda Custom Meat Packers and he just wanted to tell his story at the time on a on a on a vlog a video log um, kind of broadcast that he had on his own website. I think it was called KevTV.ca or something. 
Uh, and it was he was just sort of like switching careers and building a portfolio of film to to um, transition away from his job in finance and towards full time film, and that's where his heart was at. So uh, we did shoot a film called uh, Kill Day the Film, and it's on Vimeo. It's free. It's a five minute uh, thing, and it's just me talking with some music that I chose and some real somber uh, discussion around the process of animals, uh, domestic animals for the for food at, at a at a local small scale slaughterhouse. Anyway, he's like, really cool dude. He, he edited it. He did it well. It was respectful. Uh, I think that piece of film got 70,000 views uh, at this point. Uh, we entered into a film festival, and, and we won uh, a second, first runner-up prize or something like that in uh, uh, Devour Food Film Festival in, in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. So we kind of got a trip out of it, and it was fun. Uh, and then Kevin said to me, hey, uh, you like fishing and hunting, I understand. And I said, that's for sure. Uh, when I'm not killing for money, I kill for, for pleasure. Uh, or try it. And he laughed and said, well, uh, I have this project that I've been thinking I really want to put uh, wheels to, and that would be where, where, where we go fishing and hunting and harvest things from nature. And then I film it, edit it, and, and, and put out a, a little half hour or 22 minute uh, episode. And I said, sure, like, that's cool. Let's go hunting together. So he'd grown up in Edmonton. I'd grown up in Edmonton. Both our dads hunted. Um, I had, you know, I had more experience because I'd moved out of the city when our daughter was born, so that's 18 years ago now, uh, to take on uh, the struggles of a rural uh, farmer. I thought that would be a good idea. As mm -hmm. At the time, I was an accountant, and I thought that uh, I could farm as well. And that was just so many, so many learning curves, really. So many opportunities to learn, challenges. Um, is what we <laughs> to call try to do now. both at the same time, try to do like be an accountant full-time and, <laughs> and run a small farm and yeah. raise children? Yeah, that was just four, just four kids. Like, what could go wrong? So I have a, res I have a wife who's resilient and patient. That's how I would describe her. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yeah, anyway, so yeah, I, just, I could go in any different direction here, but, but I'll focus on Kevin. So Kevin said, if you like hunting and fishing, can you devote, this was like, this is really important. This is going to go in the book. And he says, do you think that if you have a hobby, fishing and hunting, can you devote 10% 10, 10 of your life to it? And I said, well, 10%, of course, I'd probably do that now. And uh, he said, well, three days, you go hunting or fishing three days uh, out of every month, every month, like 36 days a month or year, in, are you spending that in the field? And I was like, oh, okay, good point. Not exactly. We would go for a week or two, usually in the fall, gr growing up. And, and then living on the farm, I was kind of like, I hunt anytime I'm walking past an, a window, I'm hunting. There's rifles, yeah. you know. I'm not going to say they're loaded, but yeah. no, they're not loaded. <laughs> they're not loaded. Yeah. But uh, living in the country has some opportunities for things like uh, like varmints coming to prey on your livestock and things. So my eyes are always scanning the ditches on the way to work and back uh, to not run into animals, wildlife. And then when hunting season opens up, it's it's uh, it's game on. So I was doing more hunting, and he said, "Well, let's let's film some of that." So that's how it started. Back in uh, we're doing like season nine uh, shooting. Starting in 2022, it's it's season nine. So I can't do the math. That was 2013, I think, roughly. Um, so we just did some ice fishing and we filmed that. And then like we were just like audiovisual club nerds, like cackling at the sort of thing, things that technology allowed us to capture. So he got some decent microphones and like we were recording that like some highlights were recording the noises of the ice cracking, uh, you know, like three foot thick ice making moaning noises that you could hear from the surface, but he, he got underwater microphones. And, and so we were just appreciating all of the sort of 1980s style hunting that we were grown up into 
where there's snowmobiles and gas-powered augers and noise. And, um, you know, my, my dad had quads and his dad had quads and all that kind of stuff. So we kind of started there. And then with the improvement of electronics and technology, you know, for an inexpensive amount of money, uh, very soon, I think even in the first episode, no, we had a, a great big heavy uh, a crane lift, like a big arm that could take a GoPro and lift it up in the air rather dramatically, kind of like a drone taking off that would, would, it would arrive on set kind of like the next year. I think he bought an early uh, DJI drone. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just playing with this inexpensive stuff that captured really good quality sound uh, and video. And then he would go home and edit it on his Mac at home and score it because he was he spent a lot of time uh, uh, kind of in the music uh, I don't, don't want to say business but, but to, in in the music hobby and the music craft so he mm-hmm. would craft music or score music to match uh, the scenes and then he cut the scenes and then he put it out there uh, he tossed it on Vimeo and he says if you know there's a lot of business models that throw things on YouTube for free. And he kind of thought, I have some friends, and if the friends wouldn't buy me a cup of coffee to watch a half hour of my edited uh, effort, then forget it. So they can they can just pay right from the beginning, like two three bucks an episode. I think it's, I think it might be thirty bucks a season. So that was his business, and I mean, he's we talk finance all the time. We were like we we joked about how we were the board of directors in those in those early years of of his businesses and 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 of my businesses. So he would. He would give advice and we would talk about sort of uh, reasonable next steps for me growing the things that I was working on. And, and then I would do likewise. So we had like great times. You know, in hunting, there's just so much camaraderie uh, built around the core group of people that you go with. And then there's, there's sort of like, I don't want to use the word inappropriately, but there's kind of an intimacy uh, that you get to know your hunting pals probably better than than any other friends or coworkers, because you're kind of in the trenches at times, you know, there's, there can be life or death, you know, or, or like, I don't want to say death, but your health threatening, <laughs> like there's risky situations yeah, and that can happen. Yeah. Uh, you could stick, you could get a one ton Dodge diesel stuck in the mud and like walk back through barren cougar territory for four hours in the dark. And there's a certain amount of bonding there when you're having someone like, you know, hold a flashlight while you take a leak <laughs> You're both scared for your lives. Like that's pretty good. So, so that was yeah. So we're doing like, uh, well, we were on twelve trips, ten or twelve trips a year, um, and some of them went longer, like more than three days or four days. So we're doing like thirty or forty days a year in the field. And luckily for me, entrepreneurship gave me that flexibility. And we kind of accidentally and purposefully set the the business up that way. Uh, I I gave up the the accounting, the industrial accounting stuff that I was doing, and so we had the uh, the meat shop and I didn't need to be there cutting uh every day at all times and and that worked out uh so I could go on these little adventure holidays uh, a lot of them close to home most of them in Alberta um we touched in in down in BC a couple of times we did some ice fishing in Saskatchewan a little bit and then uh, kind of like this contact like someone uh I mean a, a fan or a, a, a viewer admirer and like kind of uh, a brother of the of the order of of hunters this guy called Johan uh, in Sweden, uh, contacted Kevin and said, "Hey, listen, I've got a bed and breakfast. Breakfast, you guys want to come to to Sweden and film?" And so he put us up. Uh, we flew there. Uh, John Schneider, Kevin, and I uh, flew to Sweden, and uh, and we got to ha- we got to hang out with some uh, Swedish hunters on 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 a moose hunt in Sweden. And I think that nice. edited down to, to like two half hour episodes, but like it was really kind of mind blowing. And uh, in our travels. Uh, uh, the, the the series was nominated twice for a James Beard Foundation Award um, in two different categories, 
Uh, it was funny because the second time, uh, the first time we went, uh, uh, Kevin's wife and Kevin and I we were all able to make it. So we went down and there's a red carpet and they're kind of like small C celebrities in the, in the food scene, like Americans. Uh, and that was amazing. Like it was amazing. The entire experience just sort of, sort of blew my mind um, that like a, like a, a zero budget sort of Canadian uh, self-published, self-produced, self-scored, self-filmed, self-conceived project uh, was, was up against um, uh, categories like Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, CNN. <laughs> it was like, yeah. it was like, it was like uh, uh, From the Wild, Kevin Costawan, produced by Kevin Costawan. <laughs> like production team, Kevin Costawan. <laughs> You know, produced by yeah. Kevin Coswan. His story, Chaser Productions, made it sound like it wasn't just in his basement, but it it was all just in his basement. And so, I mean, he's we tease him that he's a bit of a rain man in that uh, uh, he knows what he he like. He kind of designs the shows in his mind about what they could or should look like, and then he to- like much like my wife, he tolerates my antics, and 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 that's that's our relationship. And then of course, there's a myriad, a whole host of other uh, folks that that are in and out and that re- that are re- you know repeat players so John Schneider has a grain business uh, uh he grinds his own flour sells at farmers markets and a lot of different uh stores like like smaller stores non-chain stores in Edmonton and 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 in Calgary I think too now um so he kind of has a bit of flexibility around uh, other than in harvest season and seeding season so he's joined us on he's probably the appears the second most and then uh like in the beginning we were bringing out chefs to hang out we're introducing local chefs who are used to just ordering from a Cisco catalog, and we're like, "Hey, try this, like try this bear tenderloin, and see, like how would you approach that?" And a mm-hmm. lot of them, despite having grown up on the prairies or grown up in in Canada, had never had a chance to play with this stuff. Um, so, so we've we've had a lot of fun exploring first, sort of the the macro food sources like like traditional big game animal mammals, and then. Uh, spending time together and just sort of riffing on on ideas we're like well man this applies to things that maybe we wouldn't traditionally eat as as like a, like a, that our that our parent our dads wouldn't have eaten when they would go hunting and that mm-hmm. would so we shot a beaver and a, a creek beaver was different from a slough beaver and uh but with the proper culinary techniques uh, beaver's fantastic um this past summer uh, i we'd always talked about shooting squirrels I did as a kid, but I'm like, let's do something culinarily important with some squirrels. So, uh, so, so we, we there are these philosophies that came out that like um, around getting zen with our surroundings and not pouting when the target species that we're after doesn't doesn't just appear. So we'd say, well, we're looking for a bull moose, but there's all these mushrooms. So so let's just take what nature has on offer and 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 um, revere that. And, and and just cook with the or like cook with and eat and and bring back to our families the abundance that nature has on offer, rather than like trying to trying to force the plan that you had in your mind. And, and so there was a takeaway to just be like, just learn to be cool with nature and and adapt and 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 have sort of this gratitude of the space that you're in. Even I mean, it, it, maybe the greatest trophy that we bring back um, in in all the trips is just the the memory, like the experience in our minds of connecting with these beautiful wild places and then learning to appreciate the people that lived in these places before us and, and the, and the, the existing ecosystem there uh, uh, in, in, in its complexity and kind of in its simplistic beauty. So, 
So mm-hmm. we've gone on an adventure from you know trying to trying to tag a, a, a bull, you know, whatever that. You go to the stores and and you look at the kind of militarization and Americanization of hunting, and and if it's a competitive military exercise, we're the and it's moving that direction. We're the opposite of that, or or at least I've been pushed uh, like a magnet away from away from that. And I I way prefer the, the approach of subsistence hunting and enjoying nature and. If you're approaching it like it's a military operation, I would say that you're you're just you're you're doing it wrong. It's the wrong mess the wrong message for young mm-hmm. and new hunters. Yeah, for sure. We come up against that a lot in, in the work that I do, trying to make hunting more accessible and welcoming to, you know, maybe non-traditional hunters that you know, I don't I think that that whole mountain athlete and uh it, it sort of is a little bit it, it doesn't really capture the the experiences that I have hunting or certainly the people that are part of my hunting community it's 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 much more on the other end of the spectrum where it's about connecting with place and nature and then that community of people around you that you go share these moments with it's it's one of the things that I I was reflecting a little bit on the show and I, I remember when I first discovered you guys years ago I probably started eat well about the same time that you guys started this project and and a few people were like oh you got to go check out what what Kevin's doing with his, you know, from the wild. It sounds a lot like what you're thinking about. And, um, and so, and I watched a few of the episodes and I was like, oh yeah, but it's like, not that like Alberta, man. I like, you know, it's not that interesting. The ecosystem's not that interesting. The wildlife is not that interesting. So I didn't like, I didn't jump into the story right away. Um, but what I really enjoyed and going back to it and I, and I see your stuff, the stuff now and like just the, the, the cinematography. And I think like you were ta- talking about there, Jeff was, you know, how, how you kind of just get into the sounds and, and and get into like the subtlety of the place. And it's like, you, you've really shared the, the, the place with me to the point where I really want to come and be part of the boreal forest and experience it. And this is, you know, coming from a West coast kid that has all the beauty of the West coast around him and all the biodiversity of BC and has this mind that like everything East of the Rockies is, is, is an oil patch and a yeah. big dug up oil sand. That's what I grew up thinking it was. And to see the stuff that you guys produce not only makes me excited about it, it also makes me value it. Like I was like, oh shit, you know, like it's probably shouldn't dig up every little bit of that boreal ecosystem and turn it into fuel for my truck. Like it's, it's really cool. Yeah. You're done. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, having grown up here and living here and, and, and even having traveled to see the coast, like uh, this last season we did a kayaking trip at Auto Telegraph Cove on Vancouver Island and saw the ocean and, um, oh yeah, and in a previous season we we did go to see Kevin's uh, uh, cousin on the coast, and we, you know we were just blown away. You know <laughs> we're we're pleased to be here, and there's there's such a diversity from the grasslands to the boreal and the and the the eastern slopes of of the Rockies are crazy, uh, and and the boreal just like it's it's size the, um, it's all amazing. But 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 then you get to the we just started playing in British Columbia, and the ocean is like another universe of things to to learn and see and do like, so this past summer uh, we're, we're on these, uh, the Birdwood group of islands, like sort of East of Telegraph Cove, North of yeah. Campbell river, uh, 30 miles uh, off Telegraph or towards the in, the mainland from Telegraph Cove. And, and we paddled kayaks with a pod of orcas, which was like an impossible, the probabilities were in like, they're just, it was just impossible. But these, these killer whales came up and, and breached right, right off the Island that we were camped on for the, for the bulk of the time. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I mean, it, that just, so you kind of get better at, 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 um, leaping into, 
uh, you know, improbable adventures. And, and, and we've gotten more bold in that, like, yeah, we could do that. And we could do that on foot. We could do that with muscle power and, and not rely on, you know, on vehicles as much or technology as much. Uh, so a, a lot of like, we're staying in tents. There's no like trailer for the stars. Like I, like I always bug Kevin, like, where's my trailer, my hot tub. And, uh, <laughs> He's like, D- dig a hole, you know, <laughs> here's yeah, a shovel. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> we've kind of avoided all that. Like 99% is like, there. one time we used John's RV down in the, in Southern Alberta because it was so windy, but uh, uh, it's all it's all tense and um, it's all, uh, you know, recovery, getting to the roads with animals uh, to where we can load them into vehicles. And and then we ex- we we went further on, I remember the, the, the turning point, we're up by Grand Prairie and, and it was a good mushroom year. So I was saying that, like, well, there's a lot of mushrooms this year. Let's pick them. And so the, the whole episode kind of took a right turn from, I think, elk or moose or elk and moose, and it turned into a, a mushroom and grouse uh, episode. So having some skills, kind of some culinary skills or some culinary basics, and then just sort of a childlike wonder and reverence for all that's out there, and then also learning like three or four plants, you know, every couple of months. Um, and I have like an entire repertoire of maybe, you know, 15 plants and and three or four mushrooms that I know for sure that I can eat. But then Kevin has those ones and a couple more, you know, and, and you find that you're cooking with quite a, like quite a larder of, of flavors and colors and textures and uh, a nutritional value that you wouldn't, if you were just, you know, solely zeroing in on that, on that, uh, the bull moose and, 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 and a bigger, whatever it is, it's got to have a bigger set of antlers than the one last year. And that, that's not us. Like it's, you know, antlers are pretty neat, but really the best, the best eating animals are usually just like the animals that we eat, uh, that we grow in a conventional sense is that we eat young animals, mm-hmm. um, for tenderness, you know, quality issues. Um, I don't know. It, it, that's great. And, but then like, I guess, you know, being a butcher and coming from the experience of being a butcher, um, we learn to eat less than desirable animals because uh, uh, living on a livestock farm, you have animals that aren't, that aren't harvested at their prime. And that's mm-hmm. kind of like what trophy hunting is or hunting for uh, big bucks or big bulls. It's a non-prime animal. So, so like, oh, you're just going to sit there and like, like you know, shit talk uh, the food value of, of a buck. And like, no, mm-hmm. not exactly. Um, they're good too, but they take a different kind of culinary approach than would a, a fawn. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and then I mean, there's you, a, there's a spectrum, which is cool that you get to explore, like a, a spectrum of meats, all in the same species, if if you like, you know. Oh, absolutely. There's there's <laughs> merit to all, all, like like a, I mean, my my good friend Jody Peck, who who's um, does a lot of stuff with us, and she's sort of a forager, but she's also a a, a, a hunter too. Um, but she does some of her foraging workshops, but she, she's funny. Like she'll say like, she'll be up hunting in the piece where she's from and there'll be three bull moose there. And there's like a 55 inch, you know, peace river bull moose standing there next to a spike fork bull. And she'll like, every time she'll shoot the spike fork bull. But if there was one, like a small paddle bull, like a, like a three-year-old in between, she'd shoot that one because it's got, you know, 50% more meat than the spiker and still tender and loveliness. Right. Here. Yeah. So before we get, exactly. I just I just brought up Jody. So, um, let, let's um take a break and talk about what we're having for drinks. We did talk about trying to make a some type of a cocktaily thing from from the wild. Uh, what sure. what do you what do you make what are you drinking now for for this okay. podcast? Well, um, I looked in my cupboard when you mentioned the the from the wild cocktails. I thought, what's from the wild and what's like genuinely 
know, genuinely from the wild and, and sort of a, uh, a souvenir of the show. And so I am not like, we've had, bar, uh, bartenders and people that worked in the, in the cocktail and restaurant industry. And that's been sort of like a, a recent innovation in the show was to move from like, uh, big game animals and fish to non-traditional, uh, like small animals and birds, uh, non, non-targeted, non-desirable fish. That was the sort of cool to, to plants, plants and mushrooms, and then plants and mushrooms, uh, all on the plate. And then I would say when this character that was introduced, uh, that we met at a, a food convention in Toronto called Melissa Finn, uh, she spent a career in, in the, in the world of cocktails as a bartender. And so she said, I'd love to come and hang out with you guys on the show. And I want to see Western Canada. I'm going to be in the area. Could I come hang out with you guys? And then she introduced us to the concept of using wild ingredients, wild forage ingredients for, for cocktails. And this isn't my area of expertise, but it really got us excited about taking these flavors and building uh, tinctures uh, to, to flavor our beverages so that you could, you could literally pair beverages with uh, the food that we eat in the field with these crazy flavors that, that come from whatever environment they were in. So we could sort of drink the forest while we're eating the forest. So the concept was <laughs> planted and, and Melissa did a bunch of research and, uh, and, and went wild. So uh, some really basic uh, ideas that me, uh, I mean, growing up as a rum and Coke guy, I'm like, I've kicked that habit long ago, but <laughs> I like whis- whiskey or like ice cold whiskey, whiskey on ice. But when we're, and, and in camp, I tend not to drink because there's too much work to do. Um, but we'll have one if we harvest an animal, like a nice whiskey. Uh, then Melissa shows up on the scene and she just clobbers it. Like she's, she's using smoke from the, from the chimney um, out of the wood stove in, in, the, in the pioneer tent that we camp with. And uh-huh. she's smoking some caribou lichen to use as a garnish on this, on this uh, uh, Manhattan that, that she put together with flavors of the forest. And the rules are simple in making a cocktail uh, that you have a spirit and you have a, a, a simple syrup, a syrup, a sweet, and you have a, a bitter. Uh, you mix them together, you make it cold and you pour it and drink it and it's good. So the concepts, if you want to keep it sort of simple in your head, is that like, what is the rum and Coke? What is the horrible drink that you could get at the, at the teeny bopper bar when you're, when you're 18, 19 years old and you're in the club and it's like soda uh, soda and a really low quality uh, 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 spirit, uh, and that sort of fills the the role. Maybe with a squeeze of lime in there, so you have bitter or tart. Um, you have sugar uh, sweet from the simple syrup. In, in this, in, in in a lot of cases, it's it's like soda or pop, and then uh, and then you have a spirit. So, okay, so long story. Then uh, we're on the farm. We own a quarter section, 160 acres, and I, I I found this this plant that grows in in the the wild forest parts of our land it's called i couldn't understand it because it wasn't quite a mushroom it's it comes up out of the ground in the shape of a candy cane and it's a it's a bright white yeah. plant yeah yeah um it it tips over in a little bell like a like a little bell flower it was sometimes a very very faint uh yellow inner but this is all translucent or or semi-translucent milky white stalk it's it's black now anyway i looked it up in all these uh plant identification guides and it's a, it's an it's called indian ghost pipe and uh, prescribed to reduce pain and uh, and uh, lower the likelihood of hist- like fits of hysteria. So this is like a big medicine plant that's it's it's quite re- religious, spiritual, uh, high high value medicine. And and so so I I selectively picked some ghost pipe, and then I this was just like my project on the farm after being inspired by a lot of business that Mel and Kevin were doing 
um, where they were making tinctures, which is basically just letting a bitter tasting plant from the wild hang out in something like a high concentration alcohol uh, that's flavorless. So a vodka or Everclear, mm-hmm. and then cutting that with water to use as your alcohol base. So it's kind of making like a poor man's gin by letting a plant such as spruce tips, pine needles, um, or, or something foraged uh, plant-based to hang out in some, we were originally using vodka, but Everclear does it a lot faster. It's a higher percent alcohol, like 90% alcohol. Um, so that would be your, your spirit uh, component. They would just pull a lot of the weird bitter and botanical flavors out of whatever you put in the liquid. So we just started playing with that and then combining that with a sweet thing, like a simple syrup. So that's like icing sugar dissolved in water generally. Uh, and then something with a little bit of uh, bitterness. And, and that could, you could bring it back to something that was forged, like uh, it was forged wild, or it could be a bitter like um, uh, rhubarb. Like is is somewhat in, 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 I mean, it's somewhat indigenous. At least it grows all over the place here. Um, so adding rhubarb or cow parsnip or something for that bitter kick, and uh, or you could look to the bark of poplar, aspen trees uh, to bring a bitterness back. But so they, these guys, Kevin and Melissa, are sort of the um, they're the leading edge of exploring uh, cocktails, but. Uh, what I did is, is took this Indian ghost pipe, I let it hang out in some high-proof, locally uh, brewed West of the Fifth Distillery, Barhead, Alberta, vodka. So it hung out in there. And this is two years' worth of of this jar. It's a it's a, a two-liter mason jar. Um, I just put a couple of pounds of ghost pipe in there, over, and I just collect it over two years, slam it in there, <laughs> and it's just soaking in vodka. And so for my, my From the Wild cocktail, the weirdest thing is that these clear plants in vodka turn purple. And they turn the liquid purple like a, a kind of like a great pop purple. But it, it, so that was peculiar. And it and it has a, a weird botanical flavor that, that tastes a little of the forest floor um, with a kick, with something a bit medicinal. So I'm going to put two ounces of, um, of this. So it has a concentration roughly of vodka, probably a little bit lower. And it's hung out for literally uh, for, for two years in this jar. And I just, I taste like a, a teaspoon of it every, every couple of months. I'll, I'll taste it to, and, and use it to reduce my hysteria mm, Yeah. in case I feel a sudden, a sudden fit of hysteria uh, coming over myself. So I put two ounces of that in my little, do that every day, <laughs> two ounces in my shaker on some ice. And then uh, another peculiar story. Here's some wild forage Pepsi syrup. Oh, nice. So the, ki- the kids have, so I needed a sweet syrup and I needed it fast. We, we do have uh, maple syrup from the East Coast on hand a lot of the time, but the kids love it. So we're out um, over Christmas having uh, all the kids home. Uh, we are completely out of, of maple syrup, but that might be a sort of a wild forage or a wild source. Growing up as a kid, I loved the sweet, sweet smell of stinky Pepsi, which, mm-hmm. and this is just mm-hmm. a Pepsi syrup. So we're going to add Pepsi syrup. <laughs> to the tune it's like it's like an homage to growing up on the north side of edmonton with skateboarding down the back alleys and trying not to find fall down on the condoms and needles up there and then uh, so yeah that's got some sweetness and some funk and then th- this is a, a legitimate fee brothers uh here we fee brothers rhubarb nice bitters. bitters yeah that's one of my favorites and so a couple shakes of bitters and like i i did do a trial and it was quite good Kevin, uh, I mean, Kevin did a lot of wine uh, drinking. Like he went through a phase where he's really getting fancy into wines, like reading about learning and, and, and tasting wines. And I really appreciate that he said, you know, singer, your palate isn't so bad. <laughs> like <laughs> you can kind of, it takes, 
It takes some vision to think about, or just to be honest with yourself and say that I like these flavors to, I like the, the way these, these things taste together. And I could envision, if you've tasted rhubarb bitters, it's not like rhubarb straight up. It's, it's got a, it's almost got a, I don't know, it's orangey, fruity, like fruity pebbles. And, and Pepsi syrup or the flavor of Pepsi is a bit peculiar too. So, so rhubarb bitters and Pepsi together. Oops, here we go. I mean, in my mind, I thought those flavors would be good together. And then you have the herbaceousness of the weird uh, uh, Indian ghost pipe hanging out in that vodka. So we have. Uh, <laughs> I just shook it out of the old the old three dollar uh, bargain basement mm, cocktail shaker that I got off the thrift store, and I put it into my thrift store platinum chalice it's here. Beautiful, yeah. And uh, what have you got? Do you want to talk us through yours well, before we? Yeah, we bottoms it was, up? I well, I'm actually gonna. I, I got to give credit to my friend Jody Peck who who harvested her bitters from 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 the peace country. So this is roasted dandelion um, with chaga, and I think it's cacao nibs. I think it was just a fancy way of saying like cocoa flavors. Yeah, I um, like it. Sounds, uh, sounds and, and cinnamon. And uh, this was a gift, and to, actually to Mickey, my my partner, um, but uh, she let me use some of it to make a wild cocktail. But what I so that's that's exciting and that's that's my bitter. Um, I've got a this is this is hilarious. So this is um this is moonshine that it's it's like crafted uh, by my a good friend of mine an artist on the east side of Vancouver and because it like like rent is so high in Vancouver our artists now have to produce illegal alcohol in order to pay their rent. But the way that they do it see, see this is the original work of art on the lid of this mason jar here. So it's actually not moonshine that he's selling. He's selling original works of art. So he can sell you a pint of moonshine for two hundred bucks, and you get an original work worth, you know, original work of art. Plus, you get, you know, a pint of moonshine that's actually quite good. So, yeah, there's an idea for you. Amazing, if you're an entrepreneur. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, so so I'll have a, a an ounce of that, or not even. It's pretty strong stuff with a little bit of the bitters and 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 maple syrup, and it tastes. Pretty darn good. It's really uh, that, that. I think it's the chaga that makes it pretty earthy and uh, yeah. cool. So, but yeah, cheers to um, have a cocktail with you. Cheers to the wild flavors. Mm. Wow, that is wild for sure. Same. Uh, yeah. Mm. And just, I'm really pleased. Really smooth, mm. really nice, ba- well balanced. There you go. Mm. I might go in for I some it. more. I might go in for some more. <laughs> I'm gonna have, to, I'm have to resume filming tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah, try to do a check out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's good because I, I, I really, I, I mean, I love, I love a cocktail or a drink, and I, I find that I, if I, if I'm not careful, I'll drink too fast, and I, and I want to enjoy. I, as I get older, I actually don't ever want to get drunk i want to have good sleeps at night i just but i enjoy drinking enough that so that the, the so that the more interesting i make a drink the slower i drink it and therefore mm-hmm. the less i drink and that's a good thing so this would be a nice sipper yeah mm-hmm. i've simmered mm-hmm. down uh i was never any kind of a big party guy being an accountant and everything but i could i yeah the reasons and the yeah i mean i, I drank out of discomfort in the past and i thought that's what it was for to make uncomfortable situations more tolerable yeah in my <laughs> yeah. in my 20s you know yeah. and then uh 
whether it's in nature, it became like celeb- celebratory, and then it and then paired with meals. I was like, holy shit! You know, you yeah. if you can have something that's paired well, there are those sommelier guys that can they can nail it. Um, I've got a friend in in the city that works at Faro, uh, one of the owners of uh, Faro Sandwiches, and he really got into coffee in in a heavy way, pour, pour over coffees and like yeah, and different um, terroirs of coffee beans, the way that they're treated. And he can just blow your mind. He can just knock your socks off, telling you what you're going to taste. And sure enough, those tastes appear in the in, in coffee. So, uh, kind of applying that and sort of a con- the concepts around wine to meats and cheeses. I don't know. It's 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 a it's a renaissance. I think a lot of the rest of the world understood this for a long time. Uh, my wife and I went on a trip to Turin, Italy, on a to, to a slow food convention in in Italy, and we were like, man, we're so far behind. And, and and I remember that some of the questions that they had for us about, about Canadian, the Canadian food scene uh, was about our, our, in our access to indigenous foods. They're like, you have bison there. They're like, I remember mm-hmm. everyone asked about bison and I was like, yeah, it's just kind of, it's not great. <laughs> you know, it's, a <laughs> yeah. dry, it's a dry meat. And they're, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could have bison if you want. I, we slaughter them at the slaughterhouse and, and I'm like, they're lean. They're like a giant grasshopper. No, no fat. And uh, those big dorsal uh, ridges on their backs, like they're kind of a weird animal. Not built heavy, not built to produce meat, but built to run, you know? Yeah. And uh, all skulls and throats on them, like yeah. bulldogs, yeah. like front end heavy and, and really, anyway. Um, yeah, they were thrilled about that. So I kind of left, or we left uh, Italy thinking about uh, revering food, revering the terroir of, of, of both like indigenous wild foods and then also... Um, like they had stuff like you can't call this Parmesan cheese unless it's from uh, this this district. The uh, Parmesan Reggiano cheese is like so they had these concepts about you can't just copy the name. And so like I just tried that out like in conversations with people like this is an this is an Erford uh, beef cattle from the Peavine, uh, the hills of Peavine, <laughs> and and, uh, and you know it. Uh, you you probably know hunting quite a bit. You, there is a difference. There, there's there's differences in regionality uh, based yeah. on terroir in in wild game. Also, uh, if you shoot a buck like out in a cornfield or a, a soy field, uh, his meat, everything about him is going to be different than if you shoot a bush buck back in the swamp somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially, it was pronounced. We, we, I grew up on moose meat, and it was really pronounced in in moose that if this thing spent lots of its time in the swamps. Um, you knew it was going to be lean, and it would actually have a, a willowy taste uh, to the to the muscle meat on a, on a moose. And then when we moved to the farm, we killed a few moose uh, out on uh, barley and canola, which is weird, like an oilseed grain. And uh, these things were just loaded with fat and didn't have that swampy like willow bark flavor built in. Mm-hmm. And that's something that should be celebrated, like like you know. Um, uh, it's cool. You just pick up the phone and 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 text or call a chef friend and say, "How would you approach? How would you approach this?" And they're like, "Well, let's. I'm gonna drop by. Let's like put it over fire and see where it's at. Taste it, and then you know, add add more salt, add less salt. You know, get some, uh, get a different smoke, you know, under it, and then change the method of cooking. So you could go from uh, letting it letting a, a raw piece of moose meat soak up smoke over a smoky fire and then braise it." Um, to like to, to to enhance the characteristics of the meat, the muscle fiber, so that it's going to be tender, and it's going to have that smoky flavor, 
and and it's 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 going to taste of the terroir where the moose was harvested. So these concepts were not something that dad like pork and beans. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. didn't eat the meat. We generally didn't eat the meat that we were harvesting in camp when I was growing up because he'd have to like dad would hang in his garage for a few weeks, and I didn't understand that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is funny because I I was sort of thinking about this. Con- I was you know I was trying to come up with some effort at, to try to create some structure on the conversation. I, I don't actually need to do that with you. I just you <laughs> wind you up and you go yeah. and you kind of get where I want to go here. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's great. Yeah. I, I sometimes do these podcasts and I'm like, shit, I, I wish I would talk less because I'm so happy to have these people on. Oh, share yeah, knowledge. I feel the but, same way. When I do when I do podcasts, <laughs> I was like, uh, I probably talk too much on that one. How do you edit it that down? Like, no, it's, but okay. It's a, I don't edit it, so. Okay, oh, okay no. great. Yeah. No, but uh, the, the, the process that I was thinking about is that and maybe I'll go back here, but where I was going to, like, I was going to ask you about hunting and then about butchering and killing things and then, and, but also, and, and how that leads into your, your progression in your relationship with your food. And and, I, and I'm kind of catching the story here where like, it's, it's becoming more involved as you, as you get to know the animals, the place, the people who are surrounding you by, who surround you with the food and, and share their knowledge with you. You're, you're like the, it's just becoming more and more fascinating and intricate the way that you eat off the land and right down to how you have your cocktails. So but let, let, let's just go back here a little bit. I want to just get to, um, so what was the first animal that, what did you sort of cut your chops or, or what, did, what did you, how did you start hunting? What was your first uh, hunting experiences or where, where, where were you, what got you excited about hunting as a kid? Well, five years old as a kid on the back of a trike behind my dad, freezing my, like just freezing to death, uh, like holding a 22 Ruger 1022 and trying not to fall asleep. <laughs> just misery. misery. <laughs> yeah. Waiting for waiting for that break when dad had to take a whiz so that I could get a, another eat more or two. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was ho- looking for chickens and it was horrible. And then him stopping and saying, there's a chicken now, you know, pursue it and shoot it. And I didn't, I could not see the chicken. So I just felt like a, a failure as a son and just a failure as a human being on like for all of hunting as a young little guy, fishing was cool. We could catch fish, <laughs> jackfish. Uh, <laughs> like they're pretty aggressive, pretty easy to catch, but hunting was a bit of a disappointment. And then my, so my, I have one brother, that's it. And he's two years older. He dropped out early. He's like, I can't take the the pain of failure and seeing the disappointment in dad's eyes constantly. <laughs> I was like, well, <laughs> for some reason I kept coming back. I kept coming back for more. And then I got like not so bad at it. Like I I spent some time at the range and learning about guns and I think that's like super important. Mm-hmm. Uh and then I could kind of shoot. And then I said to dad, you know, we're out here hunting moose and you won't even you know, you won't even uh like you won't even indulge me and allow me to pursue white-tailed deer, but I could get a tag for deer too, couldn't I? And he's like, "Well, mm-hmm. a deer isn't worth a goddamn bullet, Jeff." so that's that was like sums it up it's like you know we'd shoot grouse when we came across them when we were bored but most of the time we're uh quadding and walking looking for moose and calling moose and calling season in the rut and then the draw system kind of got more and more complex and you couldn't hunt moose in the rut every year anymore and dad got older and less healthy and and came out less and less and then i i migrated into well geez while we're looking for moose we could kill all kinds of other things like like deer and it wasn't my love of killing. I'm I'm in a giddy mood, but uh, it it was like, well, I'd rather fill fill my I don't know the fill fill my freezer phrase I prefer not to use, but I'd I'd rather be eating food that I 
was involved with all of the procre- all the steps of procurement than uh, than just handing over money for something whose origin was unknown or 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 dubious or profit profit centric. So yeah. you know that that pork chop on the styrofoam tray in the grocery store, every person that handled it by by the law of of it being a corporation had to prioritize profit over all other things. And mm-hmm. so what do you think corners might be cut in the produ- production of that pork chop versus uh, a white-tailed deer loin that I've harvested myself? And so I'm well aware of the corners that I cut in, in, in bringing that uh, deer loin to the, to the family fridge. And I can either live with that or, or, the, or if I can't live with those, with those pr- problems that we had sort of getting it from the field to the freezer, um, it goes to the dogs. <laughs> generally, generally that doesn't happen. But uh, uh, we knew what steps were involved. And so uh, like I flirted with vegetarianism and the, the concept of uh, vegetarianism. If I would encourage people are like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I introduced myself and like, you're a butcher. Oh, I'm a vegan. And I'm like, good for you. Like you should yeah. be. If you're not involved in, in 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 all, I mean, in in as many steps as you can of procuring your own proteins, then just uh, it's harder to screw up peas and beans and rice. Although mm-hmm. uh, industrial food chains kind of have a knack for for even figuring out how to make a mess of plants. Yeah, like ecos- hummus from a grocery store, like like it's uh, I yeah, just like these simple things that they somehow. Throw it through the food processing system, and it just tastes like it's not real food anymore. It like, it's a long ways from it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so hunting was the introduction, and then and then I I I, I kind of really I went through the phases in in the Alberta Hunter Training Course. They talk about the phases of the hunter, and like you oh. first you you watch your 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 parent or your hunting group fill their tags, and then you fill your tags, and then you go through a phase where you want to kill everything you can possibly get a tag for every year. And then you try and shoot the biggest one, and then and I think I've gone through all those stages, and 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 now I'm pretty chill. I'm just happy to be out there. And uh, this spring, on camera, I took uh, one of the four daughters, uh, Paige, the the third oldest, and so she was fourteen. Yeah, she was fourteen and shot her first black bear this past spring, right and that was a way bigger win for 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 me than like, you know, I didn't have to harvest any game. So I think. I've transitioned to sort of passing it on to other people and letting them have that experience um, because that's hey, so, important. So, well, because, so on that note, how, how did she react to that moment after pulling the trigger with the black bear? Oh, she was rattled. You could see the, the, like the way that I s- still get, but to see it in, you know, in, you know, and she's been around the farm and, and we actually have had a lot of animal, a lot of livestock uh, processed. She's, she's worked and helped out at the slaughterhouse. So, She's no stranger to it, but she's like, oh man, when you pull the trigger on a wild animal that's as beautiful as all this, um, and then you go through the steps, it's crazy. So uh, from the wild season eight, uh, probably episode two, episode one was just published New Year's Day, and, and, and then episode two, I think, will be Paige and her bear. And then and John Schneider also har- harvested a bear on the same trip, a big giant uh, uh, boar. But Paige shot this young, uh, young dry sow, and Kevin was... So Kevin was on this ride along with his camera. Like, well, we'll just go for it. We call it a trunt here. And, and that's, I don't think all of Alberta, just like it's a truck hunt, a trunt. Yeah. So let's go trunt. Let's just spend the trunt, evening trunting. Trunting. I don't feel like walking. Yeah. I'm squeezing, uh, squeezing uh, raised uh, like blackheads with uh, rose hip thorns out of my, like my, 
inner thigh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, from yeah. from doing walk walking Great and walking cut lines and trails. Yeah, it's all like best intentions. The first two days, you're just putting the miles on the boots, and then day three or four, you're like, I think we could just trunt this one, trunt it on out. Um, so it was nice because we get to visit and chat, and we're just driving oil like uh, oil and logging road, uh, oil east roads and uh, and logging roads in the backcountry, and then we spot a bear in a cut block or or on a on a on a line, and then put a maneuver on it. So. That's exactly what happened. There was a hot, this hot abandoned lease that we had seen a lot of bears over the years at, and we stopped um, well in advance of it. And we said, well, before this lease comes into view, let's stop, load our guns and, and take a hike up to the, the crest of, of this little rise. And, uh, and sure enough, there's a bear feeding on the south facing slope. And it gave us lots of time. And uh, both of us got lined up on it. And I said, uh, Paige, it's your bear. So she pulled the trigger on her, her 243 Savage. And uh, and it spun around three times and disappeared into the bush. Mm, that's a good sign, though. Yeah, yeah. Like so, it was thirty five, forty yards in the bush, like heart, heart, lungs. Uh, and and then uh, I'm like, well, I like you know, Paige. I said I'll gut this one for you because I could tell she's pretty emotional. And uh, and she's like, no, Dad, I'll gut it. <laughs> and I was like, Straight all on. right, it's your it's your <laughs> thing. And then uh, you know, Kevin's like, oh, let me get the big camera and film all this. So he was asking her questions and her eyes not welled up, but like she was really feeling it. Like her, her whole body language changed and she's looking at the bear and like petting it. And she's like, Oh, we'll definitely tan this hide, dad. Won't we? And I'm like, of course, like this is your first bear. And then, uh, so this, it wasn't a huge bear or anything. And she dropped the guts and did a great job. And Kevin's like, wow. Like I haven't seen Paige. I haven't seen your daughter in a while. <laughs> what have you done <laughs> yeah. with, what have you done with these kids on your farm? <laughs> I was yeah. like, well, she likes working. <laughs> she likes making money at the slaughterhouse. So she's pretty fat. So, uh, and then I was like, okay, well, like uh, Kevin, I'll grab this and we'll haul it, we'll carry it to the road and put it in the back of the truck. And she's like, no, dad, I want to, oh, this is like, I'm going to get all verklempt like I always do on, on, uh, on film for Kevin. Um, especially after, the, I'm not supposed to get hysterical after my beverage, right? I'll get yeah. a little bit hysterical, yeah, yeah, exactly. a little bit yeah. emotional. Um, the ghost pipe. Anyway, uh, she says, no, I want to carry this on my shoulders like a hero uh, that I saw on this From the Wild show. And she's talking oh, yeah. about obvi- obviously me. Because one <laughs> time I thought it'd be funny to put a bear on my shoulders and carry it out oh, like all R- Rambo style. And I did. <laughs> and Kevin filmed it. And now I want to carry every animal on my shoulders. And my back doesn't look. My back. My chiropractor's like, it's not a good idea to do that <laughs> ever. Uh, so my time in the sun of carrying things out of my back is pretty much over, you know, unless it's a, a grouse or two. Uh, but Paige said, no, put it on my back. So um, it was a hundred pound bear, but nice and fluffy. So I put it on her back over her shoulder and she got blood smeared on her cheek. And Kevin filmed her carrying this. He's like, I'm going to, let me pop it into slow-mo. And like, so those are going to, that's going to be a hunk of video that she's going to, she's going to have for the rest of her life. And I, and I certainly <laughs> will too, watching that, just that this one representative kid of the four daughters, like did all of the steps and got a bullet into a bear at age 14. And then gutted it, harvested it, and and of course we skinned it and we bought it, got it back to camp. Um, the hides in at the tanners. It takes about a year to get the fur back, and and the 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 bear itself has made meals through this winter. Where this is this my bear? Yeah, this is your bear. So she's feeding feeding our family here in this in this cold snap with her bear. So I I couldn't be more grateful or happy that it happened. It worked out that Kevin was you know it was on a from the wild trip, and Kevin was there with his camera and. Uh, the you know nature nature just sort of um like opened up the gates and said okay you guys have put in time and you've been you know fairly decent fellows 
and respectful. And then, and then, so it, it presented that opportunity for us to, do, you know, do it, do it, do it, like all the steps and do them well, so that Paige didn't have to see uh, tracking a wounded bear. Like we, you know, she had, she, she, we gave her time, and mm-hmm. we spent some time at the range um, the previous fall, a little bit that spring. So she's comfortable with the gun and all of those steps, like so major to have a positive first big game hunting uh, outcome. Totally. But that's, that's awesome. That's, that's awesome that you got to share it with Kevin too. And in that yeah. moment and, and uh, document, it's sort of funny that, that, you know, it's funny cause I, I, uh, I might be a little OCD when it comes to managing an animal. Uh, and I, I try to get any blood on me and I, I and I, I typically figure like if I look down at my pants and there's no blood after I processed a, and quartered an animal, I feel pretty good about myself. And, and it's something I learned from one of my mentors and, I think he partly did it because he didn't like he didn't like getting shaken down by the COs. And if you have any blood on your fingernails or or blood on your shirt, then then they then they have then they can investigate that you've been you've harvested. And regardless if you're all legal or whatever, right? You just that yeah. The less time spent with the CO, you know, for some people is better, right? Regardless it rattles of how you, lawful, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's rattling exactly. And and so he said, just just don't ever get blood on you. Then that way they they don't have evidence to then further pursue and follow you back to your camp and then check your game and all the things you know. Not that it's Again, not that it's going to be anything illegal. It's just that I'd rather not spend yeah. my time with the CEO. So I'm super like a little OCD about getting blood on me. And when I I watched that first episode or one of the early episodes of you and you threw the, the bear on your shoulders and I was like, oh, this guy, geez, he's going to have blood all over yeah. him. <laughs> he doesn't oh, we know what he's doing. Oh, you should just drag that thing out. Come on. <laughs> it's so yeah. much easier. But, but then uh, funny enough, I actually... You know, and this, I actually apologize to you in my head for criticizing you packing this animal on your shoulder because I, I didn't actually realize that I'd never hunted bears before. And I, and of course, the hides are really nice. And if you drag on the hides, then you don't yeah. get the hide. So you actually have to pack a bear out on your yeah. shoulder. And I've only recently come to bear hunting and, and realized that, yeah, once you have this beautiful dead animal in front of you, you're like, well, I want it. That hide's coming home with me as yeah. well and as you all want to that keep meat. it in. Yeah. No, that's yeah. a good point uh, for new hunters yeah. and hunters that, that don't hunt uh, omnivores. Um, in Alberta, you're legally required to re- recover the hide off of a bear because it's a fur-bearing uh, mm. species. But you're not legally required to harvest the meat off of a bear. Oh, you kidding? In a case of no, yeah, you, huh. like we've come across uh, skinned-out bear carcasses lots because a lot of hunters don't feel that bear is edible. Wow. Okay, I'm so having they, a, they, I'm having a bear renaissance right now. Mm-hmm. Like. I, I, yeah, just wonderful. Having a lot of fun enjoying it. And as you know, in the case of ungulates, uh, you know, a, hun- a hunter, I think the, the, it must be the same in, in BC, but, you know, you must make, you know, every effort to recover the, the meat of, uh, you know, of an ungulate harvested. So hunters can't just cut the head off for the antlers or, or whatever non-hunters might think that we do and then leave the animal in the bush. You have to, and it's, cons- it's often considerable, <laughs> time-consuming and costly, uh, to recover an animal that may fall in a place that isn't really easy to get at. So I've, we've yeah. done all kinds of horror. We've, I've had horrible, wonderful days, you know, recovering animals a piece at a time from a dense, you know, dense birch tree stand or a slough or on the other side of a river um, because of uh, the animal running after get shot. Yeah. Yeah. Or totally. sh- making bad decisions, shooting in, in a, in not the greatest spot. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all about that. Um, okay, so I, I got a question for you, and I've been thinking about this, and it's uh, like every once in a while I get a call from like a farmer buddy, and they're like, "Hey, Dylan, like you're you're a hunter. Can you come over and help me dispatch these sheep or dispatch this animal?" And like, 
And like, if I see a, like, if I see a bull elk, I'm like, yep, no problem. Like as soon as it's legal, it's, it's I, I'm comfortable shooting it. There's no, there's no, I don't, there's no question in me about that process of killing a white-tailed buck or anything that I'm hunting. But you know, even if it's, if someone asked me to kill a farmed animal, I have this like other thing that comes up in me that, that creates a barrier. So my question, question for you is like, do you, like, do you get rattled when you, when you, when you say you get rattled, when you, like, what, what's the difference between harvesting a wild animal and harvesting a, an animal that's in, that's in your um, abattoir? Yeah, it's a funny, uh, it's a funny question. Uh, my sassy answer is, is, is the answer, it's just inappropriate too, but it's, it's foreplay, you know, like, so <laughs> in the wild. Exactly where I thought you were going to go. <laughs> yeah, I guess, well, you know, why not? Like, eat wild, like. It's probably not that popular a podcast. No, you know? can't possibly be. <laughs> you know, I haven't had any hate mail in a while, so you know, <laughs> it's fired up. <laughs> no, um, the foreplay of 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 hunting is like there, there's there's intent in, in in packing your sleeping bag, my man. There's intent in setting up your little house, your tent, or whatever whatever you're you know is cooking the fire fire you know getting getting unpacked and settled uh, in, in you know into your camp. And, and and so there's there's all of this like premeditated uh, business, and then you may or may not see an animal, and um, you're you're kind of in their in their habitat. You're sort of like in their bedroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're sneaking around their house uh, to try and, and and shoot them. So there's, there's kind of so much there's so much premeditated. And uh, John Schneider was out with us, and and he and I were lined up on the same on a bear, and it was his bear. But but I'm like, I got you. In case you miss, or in case the bear is wounded, I'll, I'll shoot to cover you. If you anyway, so we're lined up on the bear, and he's like, after he shot the bear, it died, and then he said, "Man, I could hear your heart from from outside of you." <laughs> it's like I could hear your heartbeat. I'm like, I get so excited. I really like hunting is still really thrilling because there's so much that can go wrong and that or cannot work out, and there's kind of so much build up to getting there. So it's quite a bit more exciting than harvesting animals on on the kill floor. So on the kill floor, uh, originally and probably for six months or, or or the first year or maybe the first two years, uh, I was always rattled. Like like the, I was the killer. The, the other guy uh, wasn't a hunter and didn't didn't have uh, firearms. He didn't have his possession and acquisition. So I was the dispatcher from day one at the at the at the slaughterhouse, and uh, and it would rattle me because we had kind of a horrible animal handling system that we inherited with the plant. So the animals were cagey. And they kind of wouldn't hold still, and you want to get the bullet into their head, but not def- not have it ricochet and kill someone. Um, mm-hmm. So there's all of that excitement, and now here it is, almost uh, eleven and a half years in. Uh, I'm I'm killing twice a week. I believe that my total kill count of domestic animals is around ten thousand, which is like, wow. yeah, yeah. Uh, and the goal is to do it. The, the, the whole reason that that uh, for buying a, a slaughterhouse was was sort of all of the lessons and the importance that I gained from hunting and learning that if I want to eat meat, I want to make a difference. I want to make a difference in our freezer, and the difference I make is harvesting it myself and and knowing that it's ethical and uh, humane and uh, it has the attributes that I'm looking for. So so buying a slaughterhouse sort of was uh, building on that idea. And designed this slaughterhouse to have one of the major renovations we did was to make it more humane animal handling, so the the the, the beef cattle, the big animals weren't rattled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got less rattled, and then I got to where um, 
killing animals in, in in the slaughterhouse is is almost like shucking corn. It's it's so smooth and so so calm that the the animals are oftentimes laying down chewing their cud in the ramp right up before the knockbox. So we have to like poke them with a a flexible uh, paddle and like hey get up now get up now stop like stop. Like, don't go to sleep. We need you to walk into this knockbox for so that I could shoot you in the head. Mm-hmm. And uh, the you know the number of like poor shots, the shot placement is it's kind of flawless and quick. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not the ordeal, and I'm not sort of worried with uncertainty about where the bullet's going to go, where the animal's going to go. Um, you know, identification and recovery, none of that's a worry on the kill floor. And then as you get better and you and you know that you can place the bullet or the captive bullet stun like right in the right spot in the head it's kind of instant uh, instant death and so and so like it, there's this there's a somber mood always on the kill floor and i think we've talked quite a few times with the kids that work the kill floor and we have one hired guy and the meat inspector uh, about sort of that we have to recognize that there's probably an amount of ptsd that comes along with it mm-hmm. um but that but workers worked doing this job for all of human history i guess since since agriculture and uh and i I, like i can i'm well coped to deal with it and to talk about it Mm -hmm. Uh, so so anyway animals come through and we kind of the answer is like we kind of shuck them like corn and and that doesn't mean that we do it lightly it's just that we're so quick at it um that it's it's kind of a non of it's just a few seconds of the animals like what is going on and what is that uh when when uh Mm -hmm. when the firearm is is placed in its you know between its eyes kind of thing so it's a lot quicker. A bleed out through a lung shot in hunting is quite awful. Or or <laughs> it's it's quick. It's quick, but it's not like a, a shot to the brain. Some hunters uh, I hunted with this old timer guy and he's like I only shoot him in the head and I'm like, "Wow. Uh they move their heads a lot more than their center of mass." And so I always shoot shoot at center of mass as was taught in hunting uh you know guidebooks and stuff. Uh but I kind of see the point. I've always still shoot shoot at center of mass on big game animals. Um, yeah, way way more margin for error because there's always margin for error in the field. Like exactly, always, that's there's always room for error. I should say. In I think the field. that's a, like right. Like, there's deflection. There's range. There's you know bullet drop, ballistics, uh, uh, bullet composition. Um, I once wounded a moose that we never recovered when I was in my twenties, and I went like I went mental. I went into a dark place, a slippery slope of researching ballistics and calibers. To, to try and figure out kind of what went wrong because it, nothing should have got, gone wrong and I hit it twice. Well, I was shooting a 308 with 180 grain weight pointed soft point bullets. And if you go down that rabbit hole, and it's the off season, maybe it's a great, with COVID and lockdown, maybe it's yeah, a great time just, yeah. to just get on the internet and read an embarrassing amount of crazy crap about bullets and terminal uh, terminal performance. Yeah. Uh, and so I did, and I was like, "Oh, that's why that three hundred eight probably didn't even expand it. It was a long range shot, and I was able to hit yeah. it. But just because you're able to hit it, uh, it means you're basically stabbing it with a pencil. It doesn't mushroom, yeah. or it has no uh, uh, no hydro. I mean, no hydrostatic shock, and so it's doing mm-hmm. a lot less damage on a big heavy moose, especially if it hits him in the shoulder blade or a rib. And the amount of travel if that moose is just even just breathing at at four four hundred yards." Uh, something like that. If he's breathing in and out, his ribs could just get in the way of the bullet. No matter where you thought the bullet went, it probably went two or three feet in a different spot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so I had never invested that much into reading about ballistics. And around the campfire, uh, J- John Schneider, appears in From the Wild, um, was primarily a bow hunter, and he asked me lots of questions. And I was like, "Oh, I haven't dug up uh, my, my 
fire hose of fire of like firearms research in quite a few years. No one really cares, but I learned a lot about you know the things that you want to want to look at or consider when you're trying to succeed at putting an animal down like quickly and humanely and effectively and efficiently. Um, and uh, the differences between precision in a rifle and accuracy in a rifle and like field shooting versus bench rest shooting and those sorts of concepts, um, which I think that it's like, it kind of keeps hunting. The activity of hunting has so many dimensions and that it's, it's something that you can stay, you can, you can be like, an, you can be eternally learning. You can be uh, forever learning about new aspects. So you can just go layer after layer after layer from like, like cooking to, uh, you know, living primitively to bushcraft to survival and then animal, you know, harvesting, handling, handling of meat, butchery. Um, all of it's a lot of fun. And then having added, uh, being able to add uh, like uh, muscle propelled watercraft in the form of kayaks or canoes. Uh, I saw some of the stuff you had posted recently about the, like a, a ram raft uh, pack out. So go to the mountains and I've gone on a couple trips to the mountains in Wilmore Wilderness Reserve, just north of Jasper National Park on horses, uh, pre from the wild. And then uh, my goal that spun out of that was to one day go there with my own, uh, my own uh, outfit. And so I bought horses and we've had horses for 16 years now. And I'm just thinking that my saddle mare is, she's like ready. She's ready for me to start introducing her to the mountains or her and I together are ready. And that's kind of like this, this other, this black belt. Yeah. It's, I want to achieve this black belt level. So uh, gun handling and ballistics and terminal performance, making the shot and camping and setting up camp and taking down camp, and, uh, eating and staying warm. All those I'm pretty good at. Um, but uh, being on the mountains and having something as unpredictable as a horse is sort of like the next level. And I've, I've done these two nine-day nine trips and found out like h- how good you have to be. It's almost like well, it's a horse packing trip that may include some hunting. And yeah. I'd like to do that. I think it'd be fun to, to try and do it without. Yeah. 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 So, we, so there's we, just all these levels guys going out on bikes, like on the mountain bikes, muscle powered locomotion in, in Wilmore and these parks that don't allow motorized vehicles. That's really appealing uh, in ways that four by fours or, or quads or whatever, just, it doesn't appeal to me the way that, that uh, muscle power does. Yeah, totally. Just the, just the adventures that you can, that you can build up. And, and think of I, I i'm afraid of horses though i'm not afraid of them i i i have been on a couple of horse hunts and it, it is basically you you got to go play cowboy in the mountains and occasionally hunt if you're lucky if you can you know find all your horses and keep them you know tied up yeah. you know long enough it was bo- it was bonkers and like uh just having a, a like a ca- maybe a little better than casual interest in like like h- historic modes of transport and just sort of history like for the purpose man i just remember you just sort of like open the gates there on the, on the horse hunts and there was a time when people were so much tougher than we are <laughs> than we are right now <laughs> i think about that often <laughs> if, if you think uh, if you think you're fairly tough you go to the gym and do some pretty heavy some heavy bench lifting things like that yeah, yeah. Uh, just spend nine days on a horse and like introduce your ass to a whole different world well even tougher the guys who did this you know you know, sheep hunting or mountain hunting before we had all this incredible gear, like they were doing in, in cotton clothes with Trapper mm-hmm. Nelsons and like, you know, not really very good boots. And like, they yeah. were wet all the time and, yeah. and they didn't, you know, they were wet and heavy all the time. Now, now we're like, you're, you're, you're considered like, 
if you have a 50 pound packer like you're like oh, 50 pound pack oh my god you're so heavy you should like trim your gear down and you should learn how to go light like people yeah. criticize you for that and, and like yeah if you had a 50 pound back back in the 60s man they it's crazy yeah the evolution of the sport the history of the activity or the or the sport is amazing to me yeah 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 it's there's just so many levels that you can play at it's 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 just sort of lifetime a lifetime to explore well do you have a dream trip that you want to okay well like i like to ask this because i i get the privilege of being in bc and 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 having explored a lot of of hunting adventures is there is there a a part of bc or a hunt in bc and i guess because you you can call it anywhere in the rockies uh is there is there a hunt that you have your, that you would love to try and do in the next few years that as an adventure? Uh, uh yeah, I think like any business in the mountains. We did I did a trip like not from the wild, but we did a trip down south uh in the mountains at almost at um uh Crow's Nest Pass. Uh from kind of like loosely for mule deer and I had a whitetail buck tag still. Oh, yeah, we never yeah. we never filled any tags, but um, it, it was sort of like my first real stab at, you got a pack on your uh, backpack on your shoulders. We, we camped down in the Valley and then we just like, we hoofed it up a mountain, you know, from like North, of, like a higher altitude than tree line. And then we're out on broken rock and the sorts of scenery, the views that, you know, that you're privy to up there. And then when you do, enc- we did encounter some mule, some mule deer does up there. And uh, the the whole thing, the the vista and 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 the the physical exertion to get up those hills makes kind of mountain hunting on the top of my list in terms of like it's the black belt and the ultimate to um, muscle power yourself you know up and down those hills. I think that the including horses uh, would be part of it. Uh, I brought horses to bear camp this fall and realized what like why they're such a hindrance. Uh, they're a quad you can park and it's going to be where you left it (laughs) but but horses are like a whole nother deal so if if i could wrangle horses um and and with kids and with helpers or non-hunters i think that's that's how the olden times guys would 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 solve that is that there'd be some non-hunters that are cooking and and staying at camp or or or, uh um like feeding the horses pasturing the horses but uh i think horses and bighorn sheep would be you know the the pinnacle for me before i'm too old to do it i'd like to pull that off uh, yeah. goats would be freaking you know goats were right up there too and in bc i think you can get a goat tag every year right yeah yeah there's there's, there's quite a bit of goat hunting yeah 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 a goat would like for an alberta boy it's a 0.01 percent chance or something getting drawn for goats and we saw goats all over the place in alberta and the rock in the like on the eastern <laughs> side here there are goats all over the place and, and sheep are kind of hard to find and grizzlies everywhere protected yeah but we saw more grizzlies and more grizzly sign than we ever saw of sheep uh up in the mountains which is interesting and frustrating because we easily could have been killed by grizzlies quite a few times they're everywhere they were like literally everywhere you know they're there's they're like they're building soil on the on the rock up there there's so much grizzly bear shit that you kind of think like what is even going like did we pick the worst valley and it was it was like 20 miles ride in and there was bear shit everywhere so so the good news is grizzlies are rebounded really well wolves are all over the place i think that's done really well um, yeah. and there are elk on our farm. Like this is an area that has for 40 years, there were, there's no such thing as an elk or, or, or even moose in the, in the Southern Alberta moose were quite rare. Um, but the ungulate populations have come back really strong. So that's good to see. We, on our, up in the Rockies at, at Wilmore, we did encounter, uh, barren ground caribou, which are extirpated or, or at risk. 
Uh, I imagine, yeah. In Alberta, like they're super. Yeah. So we saw Herd of Five, and and that was as magical as it gets. It was almost like the 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 orcas um, at Telegraph Cove there. So you have all these magical interactions with both the the living and non living, the animate and the and the non animated part of our nature, and you gain this appreciation and awareness of. Uh, of of why conservation matters and uh uh you know why it's you just don't look at a forest and say that's a lot of toilet paper and and two by fours there it has an intrinsic value to those of us who uh who recreate out there um in a way that it doesn't to economists and accountants yeah or the people living in their condo yeah not really aware of how how important these values are that are diminishing rapidly uh, right yeah totally um, hey, so we're, we're coming up over, over an hour here. I try, I, I don't want to keep you for too much longer. And I, I like to ask people what their favorite, most memorable, like, you know, wild meal was in, 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 in the woods. Now you're, you're quite unique because you, you've probably captured that moment with Kevin in one of your episodes. So can you think of an episode that I should watch or the listeners should watch that it would, that would capture one of those great wild meals that you, that you've been able to have on these adventures with, uh, with the from the wild project oh man there's you know there's so many but you can give me three i i'm I... <laughs> well one one that's coming up was uh, uh we went to we went to a creek in the rocky mountains kind of west of maybe like west west of red deer west and south of rocky mountain house so we're fishing we catch a trout and i got in my head this idea that i should gut the fish from the top because i'm a butcher I bought some, I thought like, I want to do something impressive from a butcher point of view and mm-hmm. just breaking down game is kind of monotonous and it's not that impressive, but we had this tiny six ounce fish. Uh, uh, it was a cutthroat, I think. I'm pretty sure it was a cutthroat mm-hmm. trout or a brown trout. Anyway, I brought a scalpel along from like a hobby scalpel that I went to a hobby store to get because I had this plan that if we catch a fish and it's all right. And uh, I think it was the only legal fish that we caught that we were able to eat. Um, and I, I gutted the fish from the top and I called it, I like watching TV, Netflix, and I watched uh, uh, the series The Vikings and they would blood eagle these guys. It's, it's just a fiction, you know, but they pull their lungs out the back. This is a torture that apparently <laughs> Vikings did. to they'd, they'd split their ribs at the at the vertebrae and they'd yeah. pull their lungs out the back and then tie the guy down like that and then pull his lungs out the back and then that would be a, a torture. The crows would come and eat his lungs, but they called it the Viking blood eagle. So I was like, oh, that's so gross. And why wouldn't we mimic r- real life with, uh, <laughs> like with the most, with, fish, with the most severe fish. kind of violence that we see, <laughs> that we see in our, in our fantasy, uh, world, uh, of television. So I did what the, this TV producer did in Vikings to a human, uh, in an imaginary way. I did it to a fish. He, the fish was obviously already dead, but I gutted him from the back and then turned him into like a fish taco. So that his carcass, like his belly was intact, but he could stand upright on a, uh, he used a giant mushroom that he was kind of floating on. So it looked like he was swimming. And then I packed him full of basically mashed potato, like really creamy mashed potatoes. Uh-huh. And then for pops of flavor, uh, we put some like low bush cranberry into the mashed potatoes. And I, I felt like I, it was probably the my most, my personal, mo- like the, my proudest achievement of like, a highest level culinary because I had to poach the fish and we just had no gear, but we've been doing things both on the farm and at the slaughterhouse and also in from the wild camp. Like we've just been like, we'll just make do look around. I found a salad bowl. I put it upside down over a braise where they were braising some squirrels. In, and that's how he steamed this fish. 
Mm-hmm. So all of the kind of behind the scenes to pull this dish off was so it was such a high level for me, not being at all culinarily trained. So I poached a fish that was stuffed with mashed potatoes and was gutted from the top. It, it also happened to be delicious. It was like that smooth creaminess of trout that's like the salmonid. So it's it's like almost it's richer than like an, uh, a lake fish, like a, a freshwater lake fish. Uh, the trout are so it was a beautiful little fish that John Schneider caught, and there was very much of it. And it was stuffed with, I think, John Schneider's uh, organic potatoes that I mashed up with butter from the farm here. So like, there's all the story and the people that you're sharing with was beautiful. And then it was like technically difficult on top of that. And I pulled it off and it, it looked like not too, like it looked pretty good. So <laughs> you'll see that in season eight. It's got to be probably episode three or four, but it's yet to be published. You probably see it come out in March on Vimeo at fromthewild.ca. So that was my favorite of, of all time. Um, and, and I would say because w- also that conceptually we're, we kind of, the more time we spend out there, uh, I made up this term continual camp improvement that like, how can we build on each trip to make it more comfortable or more fun each time that we go? And, and so this is a calm. So every trip is my, the, the next trip is my favorite trip or the most recent trip is my favorite trip because we usually do something even more fun and ridiculous than the last time. And I think that uh, hunting, fishing, and gathering, foraging allows you that the opportunity uh, to go to the sort of the next level each time you go out because you can just improve on on what you did last time. Well, you guys kind of have a base camp or something. Did did were you involved in the land purchase of the of the oh of no the plot um, of land or? yeah for sure. So so like Kevin got on this riff. He's like rock. Uh, so he was looking for a plot of land because he lives inside the city in Edmonton and in, in, in the neighborhood of Westmount. So he's got a yard and he, he gardens there uh, quite avidly, but he's like, I want to buy like five or 10 acres. So he found a chunk of land that was really like a uh, kind of off a chunk of farmland that was just still heavily forested about an hour north of Edmonton. Um, and I think the idea came that he'd, he'd visited a, a fella in the United Kingdom who does courses for like uh, wild food foraging, hunting and harvesting and, and, and like he was like heavy on the exploratory of, of wild food, but he had this little setup and kind of a little tree house and people could spend the night in, in canvas tents and they'd, they'd drive out from the city. So, so no, that, that, I mean, it was all, it was all Kevin. Um, um, it was Kevin's concept and he's run a few uh, bush dinners where he takes a chef. Uh, he calls it from the wild base camp and he takes a chef that cooks uh, with like indigenous local ingredients and then has like, like seedings of, 12 or 15 people at a long table dinner just under the forest a canopy all nice. cooked over the over the fire so i think he does a few intakes per per summer and he's like man this is fantastic it's an easy way to bring more people like kind of into the realm of wild food and make it more accessible and 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 at the same time sort of um take the investment of the the, the fire pit and the and the, the cob oven and 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 the wood pile and stuff and like it's not it need not be out on crown land because we found mm-hmm. that at any point in time, any of our little little camps where we have some firewood split, um, someone else could find the camp and just camp there. Uh, yeah. But if he owns five or ten acres, each year that you build uh, like a few more resources, like a better outhouse and more trails, it, like it, it, it's something that he could sort of grandfather to to his kids. And and I think it's a beautiful idea. I've got this quarter section uh, of, of farmland, and and then uh, and, but he want and it's a bit for we're about an hour and a half out of Edmonton. Um, but he's doing his forest foraging walks and things. And, and I think there's quite a, uh, it was just successful during COVID really good to see him 
succeeding and selling out because he could keep socially distanced and do these outdoor activities and mm -hmm. introduce people to uh, a little mm -hmm. chunk of forest that he knows really well. Yeah. And people are just in desperate need for, for that, not only community connection, but connection back to nature over these past couple of years. So stuff yeah, like that is just so important. It's brilliant. It's, it's next, it's sort of next level to like, you know, if I, we can show you a show like it from the wall and you can get in, inspired, but it still might be overwhelming when you walk into a Cabela's and say, Oh my God, I didn't know there was so much to buy. Um, and, and it, it, when you, when you have those in-person things, we've done a couple of dinners with restaurants, uh, for, from the wild, uh, in the past. And, and when you get to interact with folks and, and say like, taste this, it's pine needles. There's, there's a pine tree in your yard or there's spruce tips in your, in, available to you in the park. Um, it, it, I don't know. It's, 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 you, you wake something up in them that they knew, they knew that that was possible. And they knew that it was there, but something about society has almost kind of robbed them of their ability to have, like, do we have permission? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you have yeah. permission to eat plants. Yes, you have permission to eat plants, you know? <laughs> uh, definitely explore that because all of human history has been, you know, eating plants and animals from nature. And only in the last little while has that seemed foreign and, and, and like, uh, you know, an, an unusual or fringe or food fetish thing to do. And it's like, it's the opposite of food fetish. If you're eating things from your food, uh, your food shed, your food catchment basin, mm -hmm. it's pretty natural. Well, in, and it's surprising how little, like how few conversations there are about this that, that are, that are, well, I wouldn't say mainstream, but like that are accessible. Like there's not a whole lot of people talking about harvesting that type of wild food. Even as someone like who's, I mean, I've dedicated my whole life to hunting and fishing. I'm still learning about, you know, tinctures and, and learning about the little things in, in the forest that I can eat or turn into a cocktail or, you know, or, or, or fry up and, and make something amazing out of it. And every time I meet someone like you or that uh, Jody Peck or, or, you know, there's always people that you come into your life that have this little bit of knowledge, but like, there's not a lot of, that we're only finding ways now to share this knowledge, whether it's at a, you know, we're doing virtual, um, urban foraging workshops. Like you can eat, you can eat, like, I didn't know you could eat like, uh, cherry blossoms and stuff like that. Yeah. It's great. Like, or maple blossoms, like, you know, like, and they make cool things out of them. I didn't know that. And like, um, but that it's cool to see that Kevin and, and you are doing that type of work as well and sharing that knowledge. Cause I think, uh, it's like you said, it's like, it's nothing, it's like picking a maple blossom is like, it's not, it's not illegal. And I think a lot of people would be questioned whether they, whether they get poisoned and B is it legal? And it's, you know, it's it's okay, you know. It's fun. Yeah, it's it. There's it feels like nothing is more important than that work. We we did a dinner at Three Boars in Edmonton, a friends of ours own a restaurant called Three Boars Fine Dining in the University area of Edmonton, and we did a from the wild dinner with Black Bear and Canada Goose. Um, uh -huh. It was we did not sell tickets. We did not sell wild game, and we talked mm -hmm. with all of the fish and wildlife officers that we could get on the phone to make sure we weren't doing anything uh, against any rules. So just people came to a dinner. And, um, and, and they had free wild game. It was a potluck basically, but at a restaurant. Yeah. And, uh, that made an episode. I don't know. I don't even remember. It, um, it was probably season four or five, maybe season six. Um, anyway, it was sort of like a, uh, a, a concept that we had, like we, we want to expose, we did two or three seatings of five courses and the, and we had five chefs preparing five courses, uh, using either, uh, uh, Canada goose or black bear. And there were, uh, picketers there, uh, protesters. I saw this. It was yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was amazing. Uh, one of the signs said that food get your food fetishism off of my wildlife, and 
Kevin caught a couple. Like I'm like, uh, I take cell phone pictures like behind the scenes all the time of from the wild and sort of what we're up to. I, and I said, my God, get your camera and shoot this lady waving uh, food fetish. Like like there's no room for food fetish in 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 uh, in eating these wild game dishes. And she's waving the sign, and 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 behind her was the golden arches of McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. And but man, it's just such a beautiful conversation about what has become. What has become accepted, say, a kiwi fruit in December in Edmonton, the fur, you know, Fort Edmonton, the fur trading outpost north yeah. of the 56th uh, uh, parallel or whatever. Uh, so we're a hinterland fur trading post and we're having kiwi fruit and strawberries at Costco. Uh, it's, they're only $2.99 uh, a pound. You know? yeah, it's a great deal. Yeah, that's freaking, it, like, yeah. that's normal. Uh, <laughs> but, but eating a Canada goose, of which there's about, uh, my rough estimates on the farm this year, we had about 100 billion flyover. <laughs> That that doesn't is that isn't a reason for eating, you know, eating uh, geese. But they're certainly not in. There were picketers that thought, or or uh, uh, protesters that thought that wild geese were endangered and that they should be protected. And that's sweet. Uh, it just makes you think, like, man, we're really missing something in our education system about about food culture. Uh, about like, I th- I think that there there could be any championing championing of indigenous culture, indigenous food culture, but indigenous culture period has been so. Uh, vilified and just sort of like excluded for so long. I think that's a it's a crying shame because we have a culture of people that lived here for arguably thirty thousand years, <laughs> thirty thousand years uh, in this exact environment, and they knew a thing or two ab- about the you know culinarily about what's what's edible and how how to manage the land such that when they disappeared, like you know post genocide, uh, they they left no trace. Their culture, a 30,000-year culture, left so little behind because they weren't polluting or destroying anything. And mm. I think that like some authors and some academics are kind of opening their eyes to that now that a bit, a bit more, that possibly the, that culture was an advanced culture and they were onto something that we, we're just still children at, at, at even being able to get a grip on, on what the people that evolved with the landscape um, were, were able to do and the quality of life they were able to provide for themselves um, and that they, you know, they, they knew what was up. And uh, one moment in From the Wild, again, it, it kind of evolves. So this last season was probably the most um, epic season because we were just going on like more bold trips, doing more interesting things and and trying to add, add these layers. But we're standing on a beach. Um, oh man, now it's going to jump out of my head. But, oh, it's a clamshell midden. So in the Birdwood Group, it's like an historic site in British Columbia. Uh, it's east of Telegraph Cove in a small island chain. Uh, and and the clamshell midden is a beach made entirely of discarded clamshells. From the indigenous people there, they would have feasts uh, during clam season. And they would eat so many clams over the tens of thousands of years that these islands have beaches that are in some places 30 or 40 feet thick with crushed up clamshells from, from the the feasts that these these indigenous people would have on these 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 like sacred islands where clams uh, grew really well, and so we're sta- we're camped on one of these islands in the Birdwood Group, and you're standing there with your bare feet, standing on clamshells from thirty thousand years of human culture, uh, and and that was humbling in that like you know food culture and and the length of time that 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 folks have been eating from the wild like eating foods from the wild, which is again almost all of human. Uh, history, except for the last hundred years, when industrial food was invented, 
and I don't know. It was just a humbling point in the show, and hopefully so, Kevin sort of captured that in in the interviews of us just standing in this, um, like an, a national monument, which just like if you're flying over, going by in your yacht, <laughs> you're like, well, yeah. what are those white beaches? Uh, might be a, a great place to take a pee break. But when we were there for a few days, like we're paddling out uh, on the kayaks and we're looking at like all of these chain of islands, they all have clam beaches everywhere. And there weren't a billion people living there for any amount of, like it was a few thousand people that lived along the, 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 the in that area. So how long, you know, like how do you get 40 feet of clams? And, and then it kind of hit you about what 10,000 years of, of a few thousand people might look like. And then you you just like it really sank in like wow you know well then to possible. add to that is that these communities would actually they, they were there was active ag- aquaculture to enhance those beaches to produce more more shells and so like my whole life I didn't know that those if you actually look if you if you were to fly over the beaches from say Vancouver all the way to Powell River you'd see sort of the stratification on the beach which yeah. I just thought. Like I just thought that was natural. No, it was hardworking people out yeah. there placing rocks to maximize the 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 perfect uh, um, shelf that 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 clams would like to grow in. And like so, yeah, ten thousand years of people moving rocks around. The yeah. the other one that's kind of funny in in the in the if you're kayaking around is like you'll notice that there's always like wherever you take your kayak up to a beach, there's just like someone's already cleared all the rocks out for you perfectly. So there's this nice chute to get your kayak up the beach. Yeah, and like. I thought that was just like some really like some really uh, bored kayakers because I don't know what kayakers do when they're they, so I thought they just moved the beach the rocks out of the way and then I and then I, I learned those are canoe skids and they're like thirty thousand year old canoe skids that are basically telegraphing you know where people lived and how they used those islands for many years. It's uh man, there's so much to know, man. It's just so awesome, crazy. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I I love that. And you explore wild places and you come across. Um, uh, like I would say, and I refer to it as an advanced culture. Kev, so you know, Kevin and 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 the and the the crew, the the rotating cast. Uh, well, you know, we've been going out for eight or nine years, uh, disciplined. You know, thirty or forty days a year in the field, and we're already um, we're already like semi knowledgeable, or we're, we've made ourselves in a small handful of people that understand about what foods and uh, taste like and what things might go together. So, like, I I'm going to substitute. Uh, this uh, dried yarrow blossom for thyme in my fish dish today. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to substitute uh, spruce needles for rosemary in my dish today. Like, so you're kind of like taking like uh, culinary concepts from, you know, Western civilization. And then you're kind of replicating those flavors to build dishes that are kind of out of this world with, with indigenous plants, flavors, botanicals, herbs. Um, and then, like I don't know, it was like we're sitting around camp and and we're listening to the crack of the firewood and and commenting on the the uh, the sommelier notes of like the the smoke of the campfire and what what vintage and what uh, species of wood we're burning and how that smoke affects our mood and the meal, <laughs> like just like <laughs> what? Oh yeah, the heat the heat that birch throws off is a different heat entirely if you think about it. And and we sit in front of a birch fire and smelling that it it adds a different like. It, it just adds a different element to the natural environment of eating a meal. And it's in depth, like it's, yeah, in your core, you can feel that that's true. And then you think, well, holy cow, there were folks here for 10, uh, on the on the plains here for 18,000 years and on the coast, maybe 30,000, whatever. But how can you say that, yeah, my grandma, like my grandma used to make this for me when I was a boy. And 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 when an indigenous person in, in touch with uh, their deep history, deep history, these people were 
as old as rocks. Like they they have a history, a cultural history that repeated in a, on a geologic, a near geologic time scale. Mm. Wow. And so, just because our Western eyes were only used to seeing things written, and if it was a culture that didn't have writing, then that culture didn't exist as a culture, is is so ignorant. Um, and that's that's it's it's just a shame that. Of course, those people would have evolved such an advanced culinary uh, culture beyond uh, pemmican and and bannock, which were like uh, bannock anyway was just sort of an introduced food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I just can't imagine how good the the, the people that um, the, the, the indigenous folks that spent their time and, and and on crafting better food dishes, how good they could have gotten uh, in cooking with the boreal as a grocery store. And just like the, the the medical people in in that culture that that could have um, used the forest as uh, like as as a hospital, mm-hmm. and it was all there for, for them, and that knowledge was all there, collected painstakingly over over you know what is it's not a millennia you know mm-hmm. that, that time scale is just humbling, and it, it just really puts things in perspective. I think it, like being spending time in nature and thinking about those like epoch uh, scale. Uh, cultures even whether that's the culture of the bee the great beaver or the majestic raven uh mm-hmm. or the elk or the bear um you're just sort of contemplating their lifestyle and their life habits and life stories and and i actually think it helps it helps rinse away in the smallest way your privileged western whiteness <laughs> not to be controversial but like for just a minute just a minute like I had a glimmer of something that that wasn't quite from the pedestal of of being a tall white man Caucasian in North America, just for a second, and and I think that that's really valuable. Just just the humbling strokes of minus forty, so living on the farm and or getting your crotch kicked like out your butthole from a, a horse double gunning you. Yeah. Uh, there are these humbling things that happen. <laughs> uh, uh, when you're engaged in a natural life, like a, a lifestyle with nature, um, that you may not get if you live kind of in a bubble, in a in a in a bubble privilege, where where people are raging about someone getting their name wrong on a cup at Starbucks, and 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 like making a video and posting about it, um, losing their minds or you know road rage in in sort of this art, the artificial environments we created for them, for ourselves, where um, egos are so fragile and and the sense of privilege is so high that people are stabbing each other over traffic. Uh, like slights against you uh, from a traffic uh, incident, and and then uh, you you look at sort of you read a, you meet a real mountain man or or uh, I went to the mountains like I said earlier with these uh, his Métis family, and uh, uh, they had more toughness in their little pinkies and resilience uh, than 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 you know than I had my whole big flabby pink body. And that was something. It's it's humbling, and it just brings you down a level. And so I think that I really owe owe that owe it to nature that you know when you're faced with your own mortality, when you're faced with these ancient ancient systems, and you're made aware of them, and you, you start to appreciate them a little bit. I think you realize that maybe maybe we've done some like some of the wrong that we've done is is a lot more significant than is discussed, and and that's where these discussions really matter. And and the sorts of work that you're doing in Eat Wild and and uh, through hunter training and reintroducing people to nature and and that that Kevin and and I and, and and the rest of the cast are doing in providing a bit of entertainment but also exploring on a on a deeper level uh what wild food can can be 
uh, to basically just kindergartners waddling waddle, waddling around in <laughs> in what was a grocery store for the, the advanced cultures that came before us. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about toughness a little earlier, and I and I often think about when I'm hanging out in these ecosystems, like you know, doing my best to survive in the middle of summer and feeling like it's pretty <laughs> tough. I'm like, holy jump! It like people lived on the west coast like 12 months of the year and thrived yep. and like absolutely yep. thrived and 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 you know we're making beautiful art and feasting and you know developing systems and like and yeah like i mean i but fuck they must they're a tough tough bunch of folks man and then yeah for sure and i, I think that's uh yeah i can't even begin to imagine how the, the carrier and the dene and the folks who lived in the in you know in those colder climates like the winter places like where you are and, and uh man like tough tough people it's encouraging to know that the human they were armed with the same flesh and bones as 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 we are it, like kind of we've gotten quite a bit softer but but i mean like it's just it's a testament to the human spirit uh in surviving like we're we're in a cold snap now so it's like minus 30 is a high tomorrow minus 40 is a low wednesday overnight yeah and uh you we're watching out our windows you know i'm drinking my coffee my espresso and i'm Looking out the window on the farm at a little chickadee or something, you know, come to eat some suet off the off the bird feeder on the deck, and you're like, that little guy is surviving in minus forty, and so did so did our, our, our so did the ancestral people of this land, and it's mm-hmm. it's no less of a miracle. But we're all cut from the same, we're made out of the same meat, mm-hmm. the same bag of of mostly water, and uh, and I think that I like my my three my ten percent of my life. I, I'd like to increase it to fifteen or twenty percent of my life spent in those wild places because uh, it puts you in touch with something that's a lot bigger than uh, a gym membership and and some bronzing tanner and uh, uh, you know and a BMW or whatever status symbols of well, uh, the trappings of our modern society. I don't know. It's well, gotten deep, it, man. It's it's so deep, but, yeah, the beauty of it, the best part is that you get to like I, I, I what I love about hunting and and this community is that, like. You get to find people like yourself, and and I've got this like mentorship group that extends like all across BC to the people who just know places so well, like know ecosystems, know animals, and 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 love it so much, and 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 want to share about their passion and adventure, and like having community that it, that loves this stuff is uh, I don't know, it's what makes it for me, and I, I have a lot of fun with it, and just doing I love the research component of planning adventures and. And just yeah, like I said, getting other people in the places. It's just it just makes for an interesting life. And I I feel so privileged to, like I said, have conversations like this. So man, it's been fun hanging out with you, Jeff. So I, I agree. Yeah. yeah, totally. So so what's next for for what's the next like adventure for for uh for the for for you and 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 from the wild? You're getting oh, up to fifteen percent, good... right? Fifteen percent by next year of your time in the wild. So yeah. I'll hold you I'll hold you to that. Yeah, I would say, man, like what what I'm so excited about is sort of I think you, you man, you just you kind of answered my question. Is like is is broadening the community, um, increasing our our impact and increasing our our, our influence. So, um, John and Kevin and I are like three of the core uh, you know core cast members of of From the Wild. But I think that what From the Wild has done for us is emboldened us in in sort of like broadening our wings and each of us taking on trips that uh, don't they don't need to be filmed uh but incorporating uh younger generations so finally my girls are not freezing cold like in in, in you know in, you know tent camping they're, they're they're big enough um they're independent enough so that um they can come right along 
So, so I think that 2022 holds a, a lot more participation uh, with with more family. It's not just a bros game, and it's mm-hmm. not this macho anything. It, uh, um, uh, two of the four daughters uh, came out uh, quite a bit last year, over the last two years, and and I think that uh, they, they're really keen on coming on the kayaking trip. And I think that um, we're going to organize some family trips for 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 the next generation of of hunters and outdoors people. Uh, to to be more and more involved with uh, with with the passion that I grew uh, into, uh, you know, as, as as I sort of reached adulthood and and became more independent. So I'm really looking forward to more trips with uh, with the family and 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 even friends. We we're talking to some friends in the city that have all boys, and and uh, Dave isn't a hunter, but he 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 kind of knows. We were friends from university, and and uh, he knows about the show, and he's like, hey, you know, my my kid. Uh, you know, kind of wants access to this world, or he thinks he's interested in this world, and and I said, like instantly, yes. Just, just tell me when is good for you, and I'll make it good for me. And we'll go out in the spring and look for some bears, and uh, I can I can share all all that I know, and and set him on a path, or like give him a head start uh, to sort of embracing w- what these experiences can 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 be for him, and and just sort of get he can get there sooner. He can be achieving. Uh, things a lot earlier than I can, just just like the my my daughters uh, are able to. So it's kind of the springboard concept. So so twenty twenty two, the sum up might be just like springboarding to the next generation. Uh, okay. Really looking forward to that, and and incorporating I think personally incorporating horses and kayaks more. So more muscle power trips. More muscle, yeah. I'm all about the packrafts, which uh, been tons of fun. Okay, so if somebody wants to find you to either get a cow slaughtered or send you some hate mail, um, <laughs> yeah, where, where would they best find you? You know, uh, at Jeff underscore singer on Instagram. Okay. Yeah. I can and, share that uh, in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sanguda Meats doesn't have a website. We're, we're just way too busy, uh, to, to, to have a website. We're just booked, uh, all the time. Uh, but we, you know, a big project uh, for me on, on the butcher side is that we, we finally put the pieces together with a, a group of partners uh, that are restaurant owners in Edmonton. And we're opening a butcher shop in Edmonton called Modest Meats. And it'll, the website is modestmeats.ca. Uh, um, so we're, we're going to channel local procured animals from this area of Alberta. Uh, we'll come through our, my slaughterhouse and then, and, and then it'll be on the, on the shelves at Modest Meats so that we can get very specific um, about the cuts and the species, the subspecies, even the gender and the total amount of aging that each animal uh, has on it. So we're not, we're certainly not doing it to get rich. It looks like that's a far off dream, but uh, we're doing it to sort of build uh, a regular predictable demand of something that's local and attributed uh, from our area of Alberta um, that, that can be shipped directly to a real market, a, a, like a market of some size, which is Edmonton. So modestmeats.ca. Yeah, it's not it's not really even a plug. It's like I'm just really proud of being able to take things from uh, the farms here uh, that all have story because I've met or have been work, working with the farmers for a long time and and share that with, with my friends in Edmonton, but with a lot of freezer space and a lot of cooler space and a lot of display space. Um, so we can have those conversations about um, domestic species. And in, in, it'll inevitably turn to you know wildlife and wildlife species, but... I think that just getting people in the door uh, to think about the attributes of where food comes from is like a great place for people to start. Um, you know, grow up or buy a tomato plant, get some backyard hens, and eat eat a quality attributed steak that's not from a department or like a massive supermarket, 
and and that just gets you thinking about what you're tasting the flavors and 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 sort of how the animal uh would have been raised so right on man that's just yeah, yeah i i i think it's a great project and yeah, they, they created that accountability, that story that it's added value for people to to know where their meat comes from and how it got there and, and the story along the way. It just uh yeah, it's the same same theme for hunting. It's just uh people just get so much more value and, and, and care more. And I think that, that that's just a good thing and we need more people caring about nature right now and, and wildlife. So that's right. right on. And I, for the in, for sorry, for the inspirational content and just watching uh a uh, Kevin's amazing cinematic skills triple uh, w from the wild.ca um, i mean that come and watch our crazy adventures and and us growing as hunters explorers and foragers uh, at from the wild.ca I, I can't say enough like for th- for three dollars an episode I, there's it's kind of hard to find better value at least that's applicable i think there's just a deeper value in the philosophy uh than than just uh the grip and grin style hunting it's not really a hunting show and it's not really a cooking show it's somewhere in between i kind of i kind of like it a little bit to slow slow tv like the concept of just like you just kind of want to like hang out just like it's not like you know you, things things move at a pace in the show which i really enjoy it's it's calming it it, it kind of captures a bit of this well the kind of the feel for what it's like when you put it all together when you put a good trip together and it's just the calm nice process and then a little bit of action and then there's a great meal and uh, yeah. I think you guys do a nice job. I really appreciate the work you've done. And it's been well, really you. fun to follow the journey, man, like for so many years now. So, and uh, nice you guys lot. are still learning and it's, that's the coolest part. So, cool. well, don't go anywhere. I'll, I'll, we'll shut this down here and then, um, but yeah, thanks so much for joining. And, um, and then we'll just catch up a little bit offline here. Yeah. But thanks yeah. a lot, Dylan. Yeah. Lots of fun. Hey folks, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Now, we'd love to hear from you. So drop us a question either on our Instagram or email me directly at dylan at eatwild.ca and we'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis, talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. There are tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver, Burst Columbia area, we do in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now, we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. That'd be a great help to us. And more importantly, share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about. So thanks for doing that. Until next time, eat well and wild. Well.